1: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about united healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com what in the world is happening on wall street economic indicators
0: who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature How are you doing there? It's David. It is the podcast, the weekly podcast. Bizarrely, the joys of technology are such that I am coming to you from Argentina, from Buenos Aires. Uh, The lads are in Dublin and on the line in this crucial, crucial week for British politics, and not just politics, but for the British economy and the complexion of British society. I have the fantastic Robert Shrimsley, the chief UK political editor of The Financial Times. Robert, good morning to you.
1: Good morning, David. How are you?
0: I'm flying for him because I'm down in this part of the world, which I'll tell you about again. Robert, what is going on in the UK? I know it's an open question, but it's one that listeners really want to figure out.
1: Well, the simple answer to your question, David, is that the the entire future for quite a long time is going to be settled uh, by this time next week. Uh, The election, as you know, is on Thursday. And it marks a very severe fork in the road for the UK. Either the country will vote to re-elect Boris Johnson, in which case Brexit will take place within two or three weeks and we will be on to the second stage in trade negotiations. Or he will fail to get a majority. Some form of, assumedly, coalition or or minority government led by Jeremy Corbyn will be elected. And we will be into new negotiations and a second referendum, at which point my bet would be that Brexit doesn't happen.
0: OK, well, let's look at the first. Let's look at the, the, the Johnson option. And then we'll go and look at the, the, the non-Brexit option. Uh, because again, I think a lot of people have assumed Brexit will happen in some shape or form. You're saying, well, hold on a second. That's not necessarily the case. But let's look at Johnson first. What does Johnson, apart from getting Brexit done by the end of the year, stand for? What's what's the,
1: What's his whole campaign been about? Well, that's the problem, David, is that there isn't a great deal of clarity about Boris Johnson's vision. In fact, One of the ironies is that Brexit has given Boris Johnson a degree of political definition that he's always lacked. He's always been a rather sort of fuzzy, uh, I mean, the term is overused, but one nation conservative. He's more liberal than conservative within the party. He's been, you know, the mayor of London, which means he's fairly cosmopolitan. He comes from a very privileged background. And until Brexit, he he would have been identified very much with the David Cameron end of the Conservative Party. Brexit, however, has changed all that. And as a result, it's changed him. It's been his ticket to power. It could well be his ticket to re-election. And it's changed the nature of him. And it could change the entire nature of the Conservative Party. Because the appeal that he is now making is an appeal essentially to those who voted Leave. And he is trying to redefine the Conservative voting base away from you know, the rather prosperous, well-heeled um parts of the south he doesn't want them not to vote conservative of course but his entire pitch is geared towards the discontented in the north the people who voted leave and so the conservative party under boris johnson is moving essentially from being the party of, of some degree of complacency to the party of the angry and that means that he's going to have to rethink many of the social and taxation policies that the conservative are about because if you are appealing to people who have less who are poorer who are outside of london then you're going to have to spend more on public services. You're going to have to commit to some of the social agendas they believe in, particularly being fairly tough on law and order. And this is a change in direction for the Conservative Party. So I think the question we're all asking, and which none of us have a satisfactory answer to, is where is the real Boris Johnson assuming he wins the election? Does he then pivot back to being the Boris Johnson we knew as Mayor of London? Or does he recognise that he's built a new Conservative audience and that he has to pander to that?
0: And can we just keep going on this this particular angle? And, you know, I'm down here in Argentina. Argentina was the seventh richest country in the world a uh, hundred years ago. Seventh richest. Uh, extraordinary freewheeling place, immigrants coming in, capital coming in, et cetera. And then this weird melange of politics, kind of sometimes right, sometimes left, sometimes centre, sometimes looking at Argentina's history, sometimes looking at the future, sometimes nationalist, sometimes not, called Peronism emerged. Do you see something, I'm not talking about Peronism itself, but this, the Conservative as the catch-all party, with no real ideology, simply being in power in a post-Brexit England as being Johnson's model.
1: Well, I and mean, there's an element of truth to that, I, I can see. I don't think the idea of the conservatism, of conservatives as a non-ideological party is essentially shocking in itself. I and mean, conservatism isn't an ideology, it's much more of a disposition. It, it's never believed in a destination that they are travelling towards. It's believed, I mean, Michael Oakeshott used to refer to it as, you know, as sailing a boundless and bottomless sea with neither floor for anchorage nor harbour for shelter, and you just carry on and try and make the best of the circumstances you're in. So the fundamental driving ideology, apart from the basics of, you know, we believe in capitalism, we believe in patriotism, sovereignty and such like, is not of itself a very, very shocking thing. What I think is interesting is that you're seeing the alignment of patriotism or nationalism, I think more to the point, with this shift in their voter base, which is taking them towards a place where they become the party of the angry. And that's interesting because the conservatives were always the party of the complacent. And I think what you're going to see and what they've done with Brexit is they have said, we are with you against the elites. And Brexit has given them a way of placing themselves in alliance with people who are very much the losers of the policies they champion because we have a joint enemy, they're saying, in the liberal elites who don't care about you, don't care about what you think, aren't interested in your views. And we hate them too because they're trying to stop us delivering Brexit for you. So it's given the Conservatives a way of reconnecting with the people. And that, I think, is the tone of Peronism, perhaps, that you are. detecting, David. Uh, One one can overstate this, but I think that's the echo you're hearing.
0: And can I just, before we leave the Conservatives, and does that explain, again, for for myself many listeners, how you can have a coalition of -of out-of-work or possibly soon-to-be-out-of-work workers in Sunderland and Nissan
1: and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg? It's exactly what it explains. One of the things I've been struck by on the campaign trails, what you come across now are people who voted Labour, who think of themselves as Labour. Who voted leave and who feel that the reasons they voted leave are being ignored. I mean, let's remember, there is a reason why people voted Brexit. It's not because most of them were deeply agitated about the European Union. It's because it was a form for them to express their unhappiness at the way the country was going. But what you find this time out on the trail is people just saying, my vote has been disrespected. I already thought you people thought of me as less than you, and now you won't even respect my vote. And this is now about a fundamental respect for me and what I've told you to do
0: so let's hold that thought before we go to see who you think is going to win let me go over to the other possibility the coalition around jeremy corbyn tell me what that looks like and tell me what it eventually
1: ends up if it gets in doing to the uk well i mean that's much more nebulous i mean what we all feel at the moment looking at the polls is that there are only two possible outcomes there is a tory win Or is there there is a hung parliament in which the Tories are probably still the largest party? That there is no sense that anybody thinks a Labour majority is coming. It would be an extraordinary shock at this stage. So then, what are you looking at? You're looking at a hung parliament where Boris Johnson is sufficiently far away from majority, for it not to be possible for him to try and muddle on. So he's got to be probably five to ten short of majority for that to work. So then, what happens at that point? Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party, which may have lost even more seats than it currently holds will then say, well, OK, we insist on our right to try and form a government. And though so they're further behind than the Conservatives, their calculation is that the Scottish nationalists, the Welsh nationalists, even the Liberal Democrats, will not stop them forming a government because many of the things that the Labour Party wants to do are appealing to those parties, particularly a referendum on Brexit. So I don't even, we won't even go into coalition talks with those parties. It would simply attempt to govern as a minority and dare them to bring it down. Well, we'll see. Part of political placing because they know they're under attack for the idea of doing a deal with the Scottish Nationalists and, prov- and provoking a second Scottish independence referendum. But I think the probability is they would try to form a government, probably still with Jeremy Corbyn at their head, and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take our policies forward because we don't think you can bring us down.
0: And then, to, let's talk about the economics. What is the economics of a Corbyn-led
1: government? Well, that's much harder in a way than Brexit because Labour has an extraordinarily expansive programme of, of change. Um, many of their individual policies, I think, would be reasonable to their potential partners in government, but the totality of them is just enormous. They're talking about, at the end of a five-year term, an extra £83 billion in taxation to fund the spending pledges. There's other pledges they've made, which are on top of that, uh, to write a, a pension injustice to w- women over a certain age who were caught out when pension reforms rage. the age of retirement. There's the policies on nationalisation. They're going to renationalise a lot of what was once state industry and privatised under the Conservatives. They want to completely decarbonize the economy. Uh, purportedly, within 10 years, I think even Labour accept, it's going to take a bit longer than that. Uh, there's just a raft of economic reform, treating capital gains tax now to be taxed as income to income, rather than capital gains, which um, Again, a, a policy which many could defend, but it all just builds up to this very, very aggressive reshaping of the British economy. And I think the great risk of it is a sign going up to people outside of Britain saying that we're closed for external business. They will make it a less attractive place for businesses to want to cite themselves. And that's, that's where it gets trickier, I think, for a Corbyn or Corbyn-like regime, because they will struggle to find some of the coalitions they want for those policies.
0: And, and Robby, before, before I let you go, talk to me about then the internal coherence, the constitutional coherence of the United Kingdom in both those options. Because in the, in, the, in the Johnson option, you have the Scots feeling very, very excluded, feeling more nationalist, but maybe Johnson not giving them a referendum or not acquiescing to it straight away. In the Corbyn situation, the price of government will be a second referendum in Scotland. What, what's your sense of the UK itself as an integral whole? over the coming five, six, maybe
1: decade-odd? I think it's a really good question, David. Um, my sense has always been, in the end, the British government cannot deny a referendum to people who have expressed a clear view that they want one. You know, the, you know, one only has to look at Catalonia to see what happens if you try to do that. So I think the argument, it would be more about timing than about whether it happened. I think that a Labour-led administration would say to Nicola Sturgeon, leader of the Scottish Nationalists, well, okay, you go and win your majority back in the Scottish Parliament and then we'll talk about a Scottish referendum. That's what we'll expect to see as a reason for holding it. A Conservative administration, it's true, would be much more reluctant to do this. And having refused the idea of a second referendum on Brexit is at least a, a, a bit more logical in its positioning, saying we don't do second referendums. Difficulty for Conservatives and people who want to keep the union together is that's almost win-win for the Scottish nationalists. Not only have they got you know, the worst UK government from their point of view, therefore the one with the ground most fertile for creating discontent within Scotland, But then that government is not allowing them a vote. So that builds up momentum for them. And the thing that's going on in Scotland that one can forget is that the SNP have been in power in Scotland for quite a long time now, and they've got quite a lot of things wrong. They're in a lot of trouble on their policing policies, on their education policies, but as long as they're rowing about the future of Scotland, people aren't paying attention to this. So I think it puts them in a very strong position. The issue, I think, for Scotland, however, is that assuming Boris Johnson wins and that Brexit takes place, and that we do see complexities and checks of some kind or another, you know, in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, is... The the, the British government will argue, well, do you want those kind of borders erected between Scotland and England? That's a much, much trickier proposition. And we've seen what the breakup of one union looks like. Do you really want to break up another? So I don't think it's a given that we see Scotland voting for independence if it gets the chance to do so. But I think it is a given that the future of Scotland is no longer a settled issue and that it will continue to bubble up. And, you know, you can easily see why a lot of Scots might feel it's time to cut the cord. And can I ask you, it's your
0: position of political commentator. So you you know the people, you know Boris Johnson himself. You've worked with them in the past. I mean, you know the guy. It's the Irish question. Can I just ask you, what is the sense, or is there any sense of what all this means for Northern Ireland? In the Commons? I'm talking about, in Parliament, in Westminster, around the halls.
1: Well, I think the truth is that most people in British politics are not that exercised about Northern Ireland, except when it's a problem. Remember, the main British parties don't even contest Northern Ireland uh, in, in elections. I, I think, obviously, on the Labour side, there are people who've long believed that are in a united Ireland, and so don't have any special affection for Northern Ireland. On the Conservative side, there is a deeper bond. But on the other hand, they're also living very much in the present, and their main concerns are not about Northern Ireland. So what they really want is for the issue not to be bothering them most of the time. Obviously, under Theresa May, you know the government was dependent on unionists for its majority, whereas now Boris Johnson, if he wins, is not going to be dependent on unionists, and we don't yet know what's going to happen to the unionist vote itself in the general election. So I think they are hoping that it ceases to become a major issue. And the problem, I think, is that the detail of the backstop policy that Boris Johnson has negotiated hasn't really sunk in in lots of places yet. And I think it's beginning to, and officials are beginning to talk about how much more complicated it's going to be and how rigorously checks will be applied. So in terms of commitment to the union, I don't know that it will change that much. But what has become clear, I think, from the way the Conservatives have behaved in the last two years is that they've treated Northern Ireland as an irritant rather than an integral part of their Kingdom.
0: Robert, I'm, I'm sitting here in Latin America, okay, and because of that I've got my Latin American head on. But what can happen? And there's a lot of weird things happening in politics down here, you know, all the way from Mexico down to Argentina, Chile, Brazil, Venezuela, etc. But what you seem to have presented to me is a choice for the UK between on the left, this coalition of nationalists and leftists and proto-Marxists and people who want to nationalize things. It's almost like a Hugo Chavez in the UK. And on the right, almost like a Juan Perón in the UK, that it's really splitting along lines that the UK hasn't split along for many, many years. You've got the populist right with a nationalist leader who will do anything for power, so it will swing either way. And you have the leftist rump of the old Labour Party potentially in power with an agenda that's not unlike something we saw here in the 1970s.
1: Yeah, and that's the extreme version of it. And of course reality always tends to intrude on the dreams of politicians. With Jeremy Corbyn, I think we know very clearly what his agenda is. It's very well spelled out, and were he to get means to carry it through, know what his direction of travel is, and it is nothing less than the complete re-engineering of the British economy. With Boris Johnson, it's more complicated because the truth is nobody knows, and I don't even know that he knows. He has an outlook rather than a set of policies. And, and I mean, it's been very striking. His whole campaign around Brexit is let's get Brexit done so that we can move on with all the other things that matter to us. So Brexit has gone from being the great thing that's going to be this enormous, wonderful future for the, for, for the UK to being that thing we have to get out of the way so that we can carry on with all the other things we want to do anyway. And I, I think that's... So I think the, the Boris Johnson vision is much hazier than the Jeremy Corbyn one. Robert,
0: I will leave you go. Thank you so much. So that was Robert Shrimsley, old mate, great friend of Kilkenomics, one of the sharpest analytical minds on UK politics of the Financial Times yeah. and all, all around good geezer as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was really interesting, actually. What strikes me, though, is, you know, he, he gave a good analysis of both sides. But, you know, he never mentioned the Lib Dems and they, they don't seem to be figuring very strongly at all. What's, what's their play in all of this? Could they not be kind of kingmakers at the end of the day? They've
0: had an atrocious, atrocious campaign. About three weeks ago the view was the Liberal Democrats would do very well. They've been doing very poorly in the polls but in terms of which side they are on, the Liberal Democrats policy is to revoke Article 50, to revoke leaving the EU not even to have a second referendum just say we are not going to do this. So that puts them squarely in the Labour camp So in the past, they could have been kingmakers, but they have actually decided that they are in opposition to the Conservative Party. So as a result, they're going to be, whichever way it pans out, if Johnson doesn't get a majority next week, uh, whatever way it pans out, the Liberal Democrats are against the Conservatives. In this strange coalition, and this is what I want to come back to, John, because when you're in, in Latin America, you begin to see the world in a different way. And you begin to see sure. the world through what might have been. That's the question. When you walk around Buenos Aires and you see this extraordinary architecture and the evident wealth, and you look at the complexion of the people, and people are from all over Europe here. And the question is always, what happened here? What might have been? What went wrong in this place? And in order to ask for what went wrong, you've got to answer what went right. And the reason it interests me is because I actually believe that Britain has a choice between...
1: Get started today at plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. That's plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. Plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which
0: Venezuelan leftist, maybe not as extreme as Venezuela, but imagine Venezuelan left party under Corbyn using the oil revenues to boost his aspirations, which is exactly what Chávez does, which is exactly what Corbyn wants to do, and borrowing very, very heavily in order to do that, Okay, To change, to re-engineer the UK. On the other hand, you have this almost Juan Perón-type character in Boris Johnson who is driven by nationalism and vanity, doesn't really stand for anything, but understands that he is creating a coalition which is not the old conservative coalition of big business and wealthy people, but it's a coalition of big business, wealthy people and poor people. So a national coalition. So essentially, it seems to me that Britain is on a much more significant tightrope than people imagine. And both outcomes will change the UK.
2: So you think there's there's a strong parallel between Argentina and where the UK is is heading? Can you give us a, a quick reminder of Peron and who he is and what he did and his position in world politics? Okay. Well, back before in the day. before
0: we talk about Peron, let's talk about Argentina, Uruguay, this part of the world in general, the River Plate. This was yeah. the most successful place in the world from. About 17, about 1870 to 1930. Okay, so think about this. It was extraordinary it became extraordinarily wealthy very, very quickly. What happened based on what? Well, this is again the whole thing. So the it's based on huge and very, very cheap land based on the technology that was railways, and based on the te- yeah. and the technology that was refrigeration. So basically what you have is The Spanish come here, colonize Argentina. Then they begin what they call the reconquista of the Pampas, which was not reconquista. They they weren't reconquering anything. What they were doing was they were killing the Indian population. And they were killing the Indian population to push them off the land. And then they advertised in Europe, they said there's free land down here for anybody who wants to come. So Europeans came in enormous numbers. Eight million Europeans emigrated to this part of the world in a 20-year period from 1880 to 1900. Wow. And how
2: many of them were Christian brothers? Well,
0: well I felt it's very, very interesting. You should say that in that population, there was 48,000 Irish people came here. Now, wow. the reason the the reason the Christian brother story is interesting is, do you remember the movie Alive about the rugby team? I do. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So, for them. so that rugby team was a rugby team called the Old Christians. They were from Montevideo across the river plate here from Argentina in the capital of Uruguay. The Old Christians went to a school called Stella Maris. The Stella Maris Christian Brothers was an Irish Christian Brothers school set up in 1955 by an Irish priest called Father, Brother Patrick Kelly, right? right? All those, and again, in the same way as in Ireland, Rugby is played by posh people, soccer is played by the rest, right? So Mm. the Irish in Argentina and Uruguay were incredibly well off. And interestingly, the Irish in Argentina were the only Irish anywhere in the world that decided to make an alliance with the Brits here. Okay. So the Paddies got a look around, they said, okay, we're here, we speak English. The Brits are the top dogs, because they used to call it the Argentine, because the Brits were the big investors. And basically there's loads of Spaniards coming in, loads of Italians coming in. Why don't we do an alliance with the Brits? So the paddies here are quite different to the paddies elsewhere, like in America and in England. So the footprint of Irish people here is unbelievably significant. But the interesting thing for that that movie and Alive*, is all those people went to an Irish Christian Brothers school, and the Irish Christian Brothers school, Stella Maris, is still one of the elite schools in Uruguay. But if you come back again, right? The single yeah. biggest immigrant ship ever to dock in Argentina was a ship called the City of Dresden, and it left from Cove. So the first, the biggest ever deposit of immigrants from one ship in Argentina was an Irish ship. Or it, was a, it was a Scottish ship called the City of Dresden, and it deposited over 2,000 Irish immigrants in one afternoon here in 1889. So there's a huge wow, history that's here. But the, the point is that what you get is, remember we talked about globalization? This, yeah. The first real era of globalization was the opening up of America, Latin America, exporting agriculture to Europe. This led to mass, mass immigration of people down here, so much so that the wealth of these people went through the roof. Why? Because once you got free land, you got cheap land. Once you were able to get your agricultural product, which is a huge country, out to market, you began exporting. How could you do that? You have a massive increase in railways. This part of the world had the best railway system in the world in 1900. And refrigeration allows you to keep the meat fresh that can be exported. So you get this huge, huge export of agricultural products from this area into Europe. Led by Britain. And why did the Brits want to get a different source? This is really interesting for Irish listeners. Why did the Brits want to get a different source of agriculture? Because they couldn't depend on Ireland during the land wars. So Ireland was basically there to feed Britain. And during the land wars from 1770 all the way up, all through the independence movements in the early part of the uh, 20th century, the Brits wanted to redivert their source of food away from Ireland and Argentina and Uruguay was the source, which is why English people will remember a spam called Frebentos, which is what they <laughs> all survived on for many, many years, made in Argentina and Uruguay. But just to give you some figures, John, this is how amazing, US lending to Argentina went up from 300 million in 1902 to 1.6 billion in 1914. 60% of all international loans worldwide went to Argentina. The Brits in 1914 invested, this is a massive figure, 5.8 billion sterling into Argentina. Why? Because they were investing in railroads, they were investing in technology, they were investing in shipping, yes. all to bring down the price of food in Europe, which they did incredibly effectively, which is again why all European countries with large agricultural populations, which the Brits didn't have, remember, after the Industrial Revolution, became deeply unstable because their agricultural economies were destroyed by the shock that is Argentina. And of course, then those agricultural people leave Europe, largely Italians, Greeks, Spaniards, and they come here and they set up a whole new life And then what we see is there was an expression in 1914, before the First World War in England, called as rich as an Argentine. And it was an expression used by George Bernard Shaw, right? And the idea was that these people were super rich. They also did amazing social things. For example, Uruguay, again, it's only across the water here, was called the Switzerland of Latin America. It had universal suffrage before anywhere in Europe men and women, it had a health system, an NHS health system, a free health system and free education. It banned the Catholic Church in education, had it integrated free education for everybody. They created the most dramatic upswing in the middle class here of Europeans that had never, ever been in the middle class. So what you get is this amazing economic history of a region that at the outbreak of the Great Depression in the 1930s, was by far and away the richest part of the world in terms of the amount of wealth it had accumulated. And it looked as if it was going to become the richest part of the world. And then something happened. So where did it all go wrong for for this region? What happened? The first thing is Argentina tacitly took the side of the Axis, the Nazis, in the war. The first thing is the Great Depression, because Argentina was a massive exporting country. And what the Great Depression did was the Great Depression came with protectionism. And with protectionism, you get the closing off of markets. And suddenly all that capital that was flowing into Argentina begins to dry up. So the 1930s, you get this slightly fascist movement led by the military. They always, like a lot of the military regimes down in this part of the world, adopted the German military approach. So they based their right, military right. on German military. Even, the, I was talking to a friend of mine last night, he said when his dad did military service here in the 1950s, the photographs, he looks like a Nazi. He was in, the, 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 the helmets yeah. the same, the grey coats are the same, everything, right? They sided with the Germans in the Second World War. And because, not so much the Germans, but they sided with the Italian fascists. Because the, yeah. there's a massive Italian population here. In fact, the last time I was here a couple of years ago, I couldn't believe there were huge photographs of Silvio Berlusconi everywhere. And I couldn't understand what the hell was going on in Argentina. And then realised that many, many hundreds of thousands of Argentinians have Italian passports and they vote in Italian elections, which is... Oh, right. Yeah, and yeah. huge numbers. And they always voted for Berlusconi. Berlusconi was yeah. kept in power by Argentinian uh, Italians who, who voted him in. but and I mean,
2: these were all ex-Mussolini supporters?
0: They were just all Italians, and what happens is that, for example, Italians, like Irish-Americans, tend to be more patriotic. So they would, the Italian Argentinians voted for Silvio Berlusconi. But the difference between yeah. our people and their people is the Italians allow them vote, whereas we don't allow immigrants to vote. And these mm. people, these Italians, kept Italian passports and passed them down to their kids And that's one of the things you realize in Argentina is everybody wants an exit strategy. So if your granddad is Argentinian, but with an Italian name, you find out, you get the passport, and everybody's looking for an insurance policy in case something goes wrong. So then the question for economics is, how do you go from being the richest country, going somewhere positive, seventh richest country in the world, to the 77th richest country in the world where Argentina is now? How do you do that in seven decades? You do that through yeah. gross mismanagement of the economy. You do that through making the really, really, the worst possible economic and political decisions. And we come back to that idea. Do you remember we I talked about this idea a few weeks ago that countries, particularly small countries, but equally big countries, but small countries, live and die by the quality of their strategic thinking? And what yeah. has happened in Argentina is every decision they have taken, they've taken the wrong decision. And over time, if you keep taking the wrong decision based on nationalism, based on populism, based on leftism for a while, based on rightism, if you continue to see everything in the very, very short term, you destroy the country. And what happened here is that rather than politicians taking the long-term view, where do we see ourselves in the world? What can we do that's good? How do we change the taxism for this? How do we actually do good by the people? All you saw was them taking shorter and shorter-term decisions. Now, this comes back to Juan Perón. So Juan Perón yeah. is a sort of a nondescript military figure, in a captain in the Argentinian army. He fronts a coup. The military mm-hmm. win the coup. Then Perón starts to come in. He starts to do what all military governments do. He starts closing down the uh, newspapers. He starts closing down the left. He starts being a populist with the right, he starts saying, don't worry to the people, I will look after you. Then his wife, Evita Perón, don't cry for me, Argentina, comes in, kind of adopts herself as the queen of the poor, right? Real populist stuff, really, really populist stuff. Wraps herself in the nationalist flag of Argentina and talks about this greater Argentina. But all the time they are looting and looting and looting. So what's happening is then the rich Argentinians say, screw this, and they start getting their money out. So you get capital flight out of Argentina. At the same time, and this is the interesting thing about Brexit, there is a deep ideological battle going on all the time in Argentina between the left and the right. The Cold War played out here dramatically in the 70s and 80s. And, of course, in the yeah. 1970s, the military junta comes in and begins to kill all leftists. This is when the military junta came in and had that dirty war that you know about where yeah. when people were cheering the Argentinian national soccer team in 1978 the actual cops were throwing students out of planes in the river plate, killing them. Okay, They killed up I to 40,000 yeah. people. Then you get democracy comes in, in the 1980s. Then the 1990s, things start to change again. But what you get is consistent economic problems all the time. In 1990, yeah. 1990 they have an economic crisis. In 2001, they have an economic crisis. And now they're going through one again. So much so that last yeah. night, I changed money... Uh, on the street, out of a 20% more profitable for me than in a bank. So they have a black market in the currency. Jesus. The, the right. dollar, when I first came here in the 1990s, was one dollar one peso. It's now yes. 50 pesos to the dollar. So the wow. devaluation has been phenomenal. And
2: of course, in all that, when you're talking about the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we had the Falklands War in the middle of all that, which must have cost them financially a small fortune as well. Well,
0: it's interesting. Every single Argentinian kid in school every morning sings a song about Las Malvinas, still. I went to... What's uh, Las Malvinas? Las Malvinas is this is the Spanish name for the Falklands. It's the, oh, right. Sorry. The, the, the Malvinas are the islands in, in, in Spanish. And I went to right. a soccer match last year in Mendoza, which is across from Buenos Aires. It's over beside the Andes. Uh, And as you know, my love of going to football matches and uh, the stadium that Mendoza, the soccer team play in, is called Las Malvinas Stadium. And you go in and there's a massive map of the Falklands Islands in the stadium as you walk in. So the people feel really strongly about it still, you know. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, and this is all about power, right? Although we found it bizarre, the world didn't find it that odd that a British flotilla of naval vessels would sail down to the South Atlantic and bomb Argentina. Can you imagine, as a little in your head, an Argentinian flotilla sailing up to the Hebrides and taking over the Hebrides in Scotland? Yeah. This is all about the difference between power, that when you're a big power, you can do things like that. And the world thinks, oh, well, you know, it's kind of weird, but that's understandable. When you're not a big power, your power is entirely limited to your own country. And what happened in the case of Argentina was that it was a powerful place, it was the future. And then when it took these series of really, really dumb strategic decisions on the Peronists' side on the one hand, which is basically, the Peronists are like the Fianna Fall party with better uniforms. <laughs> And that's exactly what they are. I like that. Right? And then the the, the right-wing neoliberals, on the other hand, who were against them, when you begin to take all these various, various decisions, you begin to use your country almost like it's an experiment, right? You begin to abuse the economy. And do you remember we talked about Konrad Adenauer, the West German Chancellor, the first West German Chancellor after the Second World War, and his yep. political philosophy was he was to get up every morning in cabinet, bring the German West German cabinet in, and all he said to them every day was no experiments. That basically yep. policy is is it's important. You can't make it infantile. You can't denigrate what you're doing. It's serious business. And when I see Johnson, flouncing around, lying, deploying fake news, being a nationalist one day, being a conservative one day, being up in North. England, pretending he's going to protect people, I'd say, this is not a serious person. And when I see Corbyn talking about the economics of Hugo Chavez, I also say, this is not a serious person. And the lesson from history is if your politics becomes infantile and ideological, a really good country like Argentina can be totally destroyed incredibly quickly over a 70-year period. And now Argentina is the warning from history that good countries can go bad much quicker than any of us even imagine. Before you go, I am really delighted that the audio book of Renaissance Nation updated for Brexit and what it's going to mean for us is out on Audible this week. This is the first time I've ever done it and it actually comes from a suggestion from you, the listeners, who said look, we love the podcast we don't have a huge amount of time on our hands every week to sit down and read a full book, but we'd love to hear an audiobook So that's it, Renaissance Nation, the audiobook out on Audible, have a gander would make a really good Christmas present and I hope you like it